0: RunAsRadio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number five hundred nine, Microsoft Azure Networking with guest Albert Greenberg, recorded Wednesday, November second, two thousand sixteen. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. We've got a very special guest today, Corporate Vice President from Microsoft Azure Networking. It's Albert Greenberg. Welcome, sir. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks. And uh, I'm just looking through your full bio, which I will post to the website, because you've been a networking guy since networking was really very hard. Although it sounds like you found the hardest job in networking trying to wire up all of Azure.
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic job. When I first started, it was a challenge to get the bits from... A to B.
0: Now it's a challenge not to have the bits (laughs) flow. Well, I actually was a Netware 2.11 guy. Mm -hmm. I got certified to install Netware back when it was ArcNet. So, you know, life's a little bit easier with the RJ45 Jack, but I've had a chance to tour the data centers in Eastern Washington and Quincy. And that's a lot of networking. Holy man, that's just a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, networking
1: is at the heart of the cloud and networking takes down barriers between mm-hmm. compute and storage and customers. And so it, uh, basically the networking stuff is. In my view, uh, a key enabler and feature of the cloud. Can't think about the cloud without thinking about networking.
0: Do you see it as the constrained resource too? Because it always seems like when I'm doing performance tuning things these days, it's the wire that is my actual limit.
1: Well, you know, it, it, it depends. I think you're right that when um, you're coming from the last mile, there's less options to improve the speed inside the data center where you've got control. Mm-hmm. You can use lots of wires and. <laughs> we have millions of them and we invest a lot in the, in the cabling and the wiring and the, in the replication of networking gear so that we can remove the bottleneck and basically scale out and add more as needed the way to think about it is that the networking guys want to make your only bottleneck that wire virtual wire going out of your
0: virtual machine well exactly right it's, it's all virtual everything now right when we think about the cloud but i I can't help but be enamored of the physical layer here. Inside of something like those big Quincy data centers, is it a FiniBand? Is it just 10 gigabit? Like, are you using something really exotic to bind all those racks together? We use
1: Ethernet and IP. Mm -hmm. We do have InfiniBand in in some clusters, but the the dominant technology is is good old uh, Ethernet and IP. And... Even though we've used the the Ethernet format for for some time, what is Ethernet has been evolving every six months. So I think (laughs) we go from 1 gig to uh, 10 gig to 40 gig to this new standard with 25 and 50 gig and on to 100 gig. So in order to make these leaps forward, there's a lot of innovation in the technology, even though the basic message is still Ethernet. I think it's part of the cloud story that we'd like to take and we do take commodity components and replicate them in a very standard way to get a lot of power. And by commodity, I mean, you know, amazing stuff. Right. Not like bread and water kind of commodity, but coming out of the major manufacturers, just like, you know, right now, Intel builds commodity CPUs, but because they're replicated so
0: much, you get a great price. Just because they're high performance doesn't mean their cost goes down because of quantity of manufacturing, not because they're cheaply made.
1: Yeah, and you ride this fantastic Moore's Law where you keep getting... For about the same price or for a smaller price, higher speed and more capabilities in
0: networking. Although I do feel like networking struggled more to maintain that cadence compared to, say, storage, which has been exceeding Moore's Law's growth rate for a long time.
1: Yeah, and networking in some ways lost track of, of Moore's Law when mm-hmm. before the software-defined networking world kicked in essentially we were using big iron mainframe style devices which don't track Moore's law right and they're closed and proprietary and so forth
0: but the main the mainframes in this scenario would be switches right
1: they're switches yes they're they're big switches and then with the advent of merchant silicon where there are companies that produce the counterpart of of cpus like amd and uh, intel then Then you've got, you know, these amazing switching ASICs, which do track Moore's Law. And the same kind of guys that work on CPUs also work in these companies and can do
0: great things. So uh, over on another show, we did an hour talking about Moore's Law. And, you know, one of the biggest things that came out of that was this idea that Moore's Law doesn't just happen. A bunch of people work really hard to try and maintain what is one would say is a punishing cadence, and in fact, in the past few years, you've seen Intel say, okay, we're still going to do this, but we're going to need an extra step or two because it's getting down to the, the nitty gritty of how many atoms can you have in a transistor?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and we feel the same uh, pressure and a lot of innovation goes into um, tracking so that we can keep increasing the speed and uh, and the scale. That's in the switching side on the on the host side. We, you know, you probably seen our um, announcement about FPGA, we're doing customized hardware to um, flexible customized hardware so that we can continue to innovate and still go fast by essentially deploying on demand the the right kind of hardware for the right kind of situation.
0: Now, and I've always looked at the FPGA stuff, which is very cool, as this was more supercomputing, like they talked about it in the search context and things like that. How do FPGAs affect networking?
1: there's a lot of security and isolation and uh, I'll call it policy that goes into providing every customer a virtual network. And, mm-hmm. and the virtual networks are then used in the customer's virtual data center. And the virtual data center is just part of the customer's cloud of data centers. Right. Some of it will be on-prem and some in the cloud. And the, the security, the policy, the quality of service functionality is uh, provided today in the hypervisor that runs on the the host. Right. That's great. That's how we're able to do virtual data centers. But that secure technology does cost something in terms of resources on the host. And so with the FPGA, we can offload that from the host into the NIC, which is the the first hop away from the hypervisor on the way. And and then from there, we can apply the, the security and the policy. So then, the, the the resources on the host are now freed up to for customers to do work
0: and computing, and, and no longer consumed by networking. So this sort of ties back to your concept of let's get away from the big iron approach of networking to more of a almost peer to peer approach, where each individual device has a certain amount of smarts.
1: That's right, it, exactly. If you do it any other way, it's it's very hard because the uh, density of work uh, goes up on the host. So you might have. Mm-hmm. I don't know, 100 VMs or so on a, on a host. And, and then it, you almost need a network right there. And we have this uh, virtual machine switch that allows these hosts to communicate among themselves. And then we have the SDN, uh, software-defined networking, that allows all the hosts to create a, essentially a distributed virtual switch. And that's a lot of work to do. A, a lot, lot of, of
0: thinking, work. yeah. And and for the record, sir, you say 100 VMs per host I'm happy with ten. So you've already <laughs> frightened me, right? Off the, but uh, yeah, I think about negotiating security protocols and the handshakes and all. Of, you know, I remember when we did TCP/IP offload onto the NIC for the negotiation rather than doing it in the compute, yes. and that was a huge jump. This sounds like the super deluxe version of that.
1: It is, and really the the biggest deal that, uh, from my point of view, that's happened in networking is network virtualization. Mm-hmm. And that's all happening on the host, and it's all this security and isolation and basically realizing whatever policy you want that was previously perhaps realized in the physical world, now realized in the virtual world. It's quite a lot that potentially you have to do. whatever network function you you want has to now be virtualized. You need a scalable way to get that done. and yeah, and that's where you have the, the switch on the virtual switch on the host with whose work you can offload into the NIC and that's where FPGA comes in. So it's where we carry the offloaded virtual work from the virtual machine.
0: And these FPGAs, they're not on NICs per se. They're boards in chassis that are just getting assigned work.
1: They are on boards, yes. But uh, you can think of it as a smart NIC, if you will.
0: Okay. These are now virtual NICs, right? I mean, I think it's very challenging for a lot of folks who haven't spent time in SDN to just sort of think in terms of, don't worry about the hardware connection between these machines. There's all these things going on within the machine that are still networking related.
1: Yes. So, yeah. So think of your, you have a, um, a virtual machine and you've got on it virtual NICs and you've got virtual IP addresses and everything is, uh, like you said, virtualized and now make it go fast. And right. that make it go fast part is carried by the, the physical world. And The way you separate concerns is you put the policy, the tricky isolation and security and quality of service stuff into the host, into the physical NIC, the smart NIC. And then you put the just the raw forwarding power into the switching components where you have multi-port switches that communicate across hosts.
0: The funny part here is, as long as we are bound to actual wires, the overhead of negotiating those connections and doing the packet sync and so forth, it never amounted to anything because you were always bound to the wire. Now that you've taken all that it away because it's virtualized and it's just processes in a machine, that overhead is pretty much all that matters.
1: Yes. You don't want to be using your precious compute resources on that overhead. You want that overhead again. You want those precious compute resources to be used by customers, so if you don't want the networking to be taking much away from that so that's why you need the hardware in your smart nick that uh, that's optimized just for this special purpose right the packet forwarding and packet security
0: yeah that that makes an awful lot of sense and, and again you want to specialize each one of those pieces i mean we i guess we don't think about this much when we're hanging out in azure but you know you're living in your own little world you don't ever have a sense there's anybody else there and i think Part of that's got to be the networking. Like it, I've never felt like somebody stressing this load that I'm not running as fast as I should be.
1: That's right. You have, I mean, in every sense, uh, a virtual network that's dedicated to you and uh, closed. You can open up the whatever gateways and front doors you want, but it's private to you and uh, and your your resources are. Uh, are dedicated to you, even if they're on a shared infrastructure, the the resources are um, partitioned and dedicated so that uh, you don't feel the the presence of others.
0: Right. You don't have that weight hovering there in one sense or another. And it's, I just don't know how you guys pull that off because that's a lot of pieces to measure at the same time that my compute resource, my storage resource, my networking resource, all have enough room that they're never binding anything.
1: There are a couple of things that, that help there. So one is huge investment in monitoring. So mm-hmm. you, you get the signals that uh, that you need to get on uh, and the resource consumption of all resources and network resources in particular. And the second that you get is just the pressure and the speed of innovation in the cloud. You get to see and learn every day because we're able to ship um, our software at cloud cadence, which is weekly. And then we, we get the learning and we can adapt um, uh, to that. So we get the, the basic information from the monitoring, and then we get the, uh, the ability to change our, our code to, uh, to best optimize the resources.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Albert, give me one second here to pay the bills because this episode of Runners Radio is brought to you by UpGuard. In the aftermath of data breaches, the public is often told we couldn't have seen it coming, but in a lot of cases, that's just not true. Over 80% of breaches have their root in misconfiguration, whether it be a firewall rule, server setting, open port, or third-party service. UpGuard is the premier system of record for IT configurations, no matter the platform, pinpointing anomalies and surfacing unauthorized changes in critical systems around the world. See how it works and get a live, customized demo at UpGuard.com slash RunAsRadio. Not to jump back too far, but you know... I'm wondering how you set thresholds to know when the physical layer is saturated because ethernet while awesome sucks at real high load levels, like that whole collision detection avoidance mechanism. That's all fine until you get to like 80% of saturation and it just comes unglued. It was one of the reasons I always liked token ring except for the darn plugs. Right, right. So we essentially
1: create uh, profiles that, Keep us in the green, mm-hmm. and, and that uh, the um, we're not going to overcommit the resources. You know, when you buy a, a virtual machine, you buy a certain amount of CPU, storage, and network. Right. And then the um, you know you may burst above your allocation if if there there is uh, the ca- capacity there, but you're Going to get what you, what you committed to, uh, in the, uh, uh, when you, when you buy the VM, sure, come this profile. In terms of, you know, the, the way Ethernet is realized nowadays, yeah, the, uh, it's all that collision stuff is gone. <laughs> it still uses, yeah, I mean, it, uh, it still uses the, the frame format of Ethernet, but it's, uh, it's now essentially, uh, just a frame format. It's all new technology.
0: Right. Nobody's retrying anything anymore. That's just not an issue.
1: Well, no. So the right now, uh, Ethernet is essentially a frame format and forwarding is, uh, you know, point to point and um, the technology uses high speed buffering and uh, smart um, allocation of resources. So you don't overflow buffers and you don't overcommit links. Right. It's similar, more similar to TCP in that way that things are rate controlled. And
0: that makes a lot of sense. It's just like, especially when we get to those higher speeds, it's like you just, the handshake time takes too long. You you couldn't do that. I'm just fascinated this prospect of, you know, you never know exactly how much compute a given workload's going to consume versus how much networking it does. Could you get into a situation where a given chassis has lots of compute headroom, but the networking sort of at its limit. And so you really can't push more VMs or more workloads into that machine until the networking loads go down.
1: Hmm. I mean potentially you can if you have a situation for example where lots of um VMs might be trying to send to one VM right where you're trying to push too much pressure in in one component in these cases uh which do happen I mean it, it could be like you're you need to aggregate all the results to one VM.
0: Yeah, some kind of map reduce behavior would be my first pick. Yeah.
1: Then uh what you want to have happen is is essentially drain the work at the rate at which the receiver can uh, can go. Right. So, and uh, that's where I mean TCP uh, still is uh, is quite good, but we have um, for storage uh, and uh, some other applications the ability to do um, RDMA, where we are able to securely transfer block by block from one VM's memory to another, so that. It's even more efficient, and there's no overcommitting of resources. You, you don't send the the message until there's room on the other side to receive it, and uh, then there there are other advantages, even larger advantages there as well. That uh, when you use the RDMA, when we use it internally for storage, there's. Uh, Essentially, no CPU being consumed. It's all
0: uh, all memory memory. And that's where I encountered InfiniBand, was ganging groups of servers together for very heavily shared work and using RDMA to split the work effectively between processors, between chassis.
1: So in our uh, software-defined storage, we're able to use the InfiniBand transport over Ethernet. Wow. So that way we can use all our commodity components and get the benefits from uh, RDMA. Right. And there we came up with uh, with others a a standard uh, called Rocky v two, and uh, it's essentially InfiniBand transport on Ethernet, and it, it worked great.
0: If I remember correctly, Rocky is the double acronym. You took the acronym RDMA, now it's RDMA over converged Ethernet. Rocky. Exactly. Yes. Uh, terrible. We're we're the worst for these names. Like that's such an insider name, but. Okay, I, I buy it. And it makes a lot of sense that we get the sort, of, the sort of Nick side out of the conversation here. We're just moving memory from one place to another. Yes, that's and right. It certainly, it certainly speaks to some higher performance.
1: Yeah, we get, we get the better throughput and also we skip the hypervisor piece of it. So we get much lower latency.
0: Right. Although everybody's trying to make the hypervisor faster too. I mean, it's the
1: as, as we are. But uh, <laughs> the, um, when you're talking hypervisors, uh, you're talking, you know, hundreds of microseconds, something like that. Whereas you're talking uh, skipping hypervisors, you're talking tens of microseconds. Right. Something like that. So it's with the, the magic of RDMA and SRIOV, the, the tech that we also use, uh, is that we bypass the hypervisor. But still, still with SRLV, with this, all the security.
0: Uh, recently at Ignite, uh, I guess it could be a couple months ago now, a big announcement that Azure is now supporting IPv6. Yes. What was your role in that? Because that just seems like a huge task for the number of data centers you have.
1: Yeah. So we, um, uh, Azure is IPv6 enabled and uh, we um, uh, our role was uh, as a networking team, lighting it up and, uh, and then uh, supporting our first and third parties on it. So the scenario that is in high demand is what we call the north-south scenario, that from outside Azure into Azure, uh, bring native IPv6 all the way to the virtual machine. And it's a dual stack, and we offer v4 and v6, and works for Linux and Windows. So basically, it's it's just another uh, address family. It does change everything. I shouldn't call it just another address family, yeah. but it, it's available globally and it uh, works with V4 and V6.
0: I mean, was this a negotiation with all of your ISPs? Like, I'm, I'm amazed that you sort of announced this and there it was. I would have thought it would have been a region by region thing.
1: Well, I mean, it was a major negotiation and work with all of our providers and uh, mm-hmm. ISPs. So it did, it, yeah, quite a lot of work went into it before it, uh, it came out. Um, and, uh, but overall, uh, V6 is, Becoming popular, and I think the uh, the IoT workloads and other kind of telephony, cell phone is pushing it. So it's uh, it's more like a, nowadays a glass half full, not a glass half empty. It's really taking uh, load, and uh, we're seeing
0: customers uh, appreciate it. I did a show a few weeks back with uh, Ed Horley, who's a huge IPv6 advocate, mm-hmm. and we were looking at the latest numbers coming out of the IETF and so forth. I mean, in the U.S., they're talking thirty percent. Uh, IPV6 connectivity, like those are real numbers. This is not just a fringe case anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you know, we we definitely saw the uptick almost immediately, and uh, and then outside the US, it's even uh, bigger.
0: Yeah, well, I think you, the US has some advantages. You were kind of there first. <laughs> they have a lot of IPv4 all- all- allocated to itself, so. yeah. but obviously the mobile problem and. Uh, the the abroad problem, the rapidly expanding economies elsewhere in the world that just have a huge demand for addressing. Absolutely, I think a more subtle question has to be: How does this, when you talk about the FPGA process for networking and so forth? Like, is the IPv6 protocol more efficient? Does this make more sense? Is actually going to reduce the stress on your networking infrastructure if they're speaking v6 instead?
1: It's It does have some advantages. Mm-hmm. It's not a silver bullet. You know, suddenly the problems right. don't go away. But it's global reachability is is quite powerful. So it makes certain management tasks easier. So from, from the point of view of, of running an infrastructure, IPv6 has, uh, has nice advantage and scaling. Is, mm-hmm. uh, it has nice advantages in the cloud, you know... Uh, the number of IPv4 addresses, even in one cloud, can be a challenge. So sure. If you you need with all those VMs that want uh, distinct addresses, IPv6 is a, a big help.
0: To so just eliminating NATing entirely, like that that whole process is unnecessary when you're dealing with IPv6.
1: Yeah, much less NATing is is needed, and uh, and and then just various limitations that. Have crept up in v4. You don't need to reproduce in, in v6.
0: Yeah, I mean v6. Its IPsec really works for everybody everywhere because it's a stand. It's only one a sort of approach to it. Multicast seems to actually work. You know, I don't think v4 really made multicast work much beyond a local subnet or you know a local routing group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's interesting just to think about all that. But, of course, you're going to be dual-stacked forever, right? There's just no foreseeable future where you would have a, a V6-only stack, or is that in the cards?
1: As far as our forever goes, uh, we see dual-stack,
0: yes. Right, yeah, and it's not that it couldn't go away. It's that we should just not plan for that. There's no reason to.
1: That's right, that's right. I mean, V4 uh, is, uh, is, is here for a long, long time, uh, and uh, the, you know, customers have built their solutions on it. So uh, things are not virtualized en- enough that you can say, hey, I'll use DNS and replace the V4 address with the V6 address. It'll be dual stack for a right. long time.
0: Yeah, and I don't know that it would actually give us any advantage either. Like, what would that really do? It's not like you're going to cut the price or it's going to go faster or anything if we just eliminate the V4 side of it. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting that just it almost doesn't make any difference. I would love to see a study of the difference in the FPGA behavior between a V4 and V6, but I'm that kind of geek. Like that that uh, that to me is interesting
1: yes yes when you're a cloud provider your goal is to <laughs> is to provide the whatever service that, that customers ask for and demand and uh, and then make sure that you anticipate things that are not yet in, in existence or in demand but uh, with us, um, we we know the customers need both V4 and V6. So right. we,
0: there were a few regions, at least back in September when this announcement was made, that didn't get the dual stack right away. Uh, is there an explanation or is that going to change? Anything you can say there?
1: Yeah, I think that's just a moment in time thing. That, right. I mean, we have to have everything in every region. And uh, we need that because we want to offer the same services everywhere. And yeah. But also just uh, in terms of managing a platform, you don't want to have any... Swiss cheese, and <laughs> you want to have the same capabilities everywhere.
0: There was a recently a story about Microsoft laying their own cable under the Atlantic between data centers. I mean, how long, much longer before you're on ISP as well?
1: We are increasingly in control of our destiny in, in terms of cabling and subsea cabling in particular because we have so many bits to push and a lot of those sure. are between data centers. And we also you know, have to survive hurricane matthew or whatever comes along so yep if the cable goes down we need to have two more right there so that uh, that are diverse so you know you see us go in with other companies to share the cost of the build out of these cables and-
0: i think it was facebook wasn't it yes okay but it's, realistically, if you talk about Microsoft and Facebook together, you both have massive data consumption needs and ability to transfer between it. You just can fill that pipe yourself. You don't need to sell it to anybody.
1: Right, right. We have massive and growing needs and the intent and ambition to be in every region, wherever the, you know, the computation needs to happen for for high availability and for other reasons. We need to be able to replicate data across the globe. Uh, so we, we, we need the capacity and we need um, the quality and the the uh, direct capacity that you get when you own your own
0: fiber. Well, once you get out of North America and Western Europe, the number of wires goes down dramatically. I think about New Zealand, still a Western democracy, but it's like there's two wires going in and out of that country. It's almost like the end of the Internet.
1: The interesting thing about that part of the world is there's a lot of water all around. Yes. <laughs> Those wires are going to have to carry the carry the, um quite a lot of load and, and also manage the the latency uh, to get to Asia and
0: uh, sure. other places. And down the west coast of Africa, like there's lots of places where there's relatively little choice in terms of connectivity. So, uh, and, you know, just as someone who's had to work in a lot of those different places, I encourage you, please, more wires. Uh, okay. <laughs> I work heavily with uh, humanitarian toolbox building open-source software disaster relief organizations. And during the Ebola crisis, Mm -hmm. we were really data-constrained. We wanted to run stuff in the cloud, but the nearest data center at the time was Ireland. And there pretty much was one wire coming up the west coast of Africa up into Europe. And uh, it was a challenge to really do that well. And admittedly, there's not that many workloads down there yet, but talk about an area of growth.
1: Yeah, we're we're constantly working on... Improving connectivity and uh, with partners to um, every person, everywhere on the mm-hmm. planet. We do want to have awesome connectivity to Azure, to literally everyone. And we want the diversity we we want the connectivity to be diverse so that there's any kind of a, an issue on one cable, then we have another two that we can run yeah. on. That's a continuing uh, area where we're investing a lot of uh, time and, and, and money.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, Mr. Greenberg, it's so fun to talk to you. I hope folks got some insight into just the scope of the problem you're dealing with trying to make networking work across a massive public uh, data centers. Well,
1: thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And, uh, it's, uh, also fun to talk to you and, and get a chance to talk about how, uh, you know, this, this scope goes from tens of data centers and regions and I mean, hundreds of data centers and tens of regions and, and, uh, the, uh, um, millions of miles of fiber, uh, you know, five to the moon, six times or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, uh, managing all that with software, which is the, uh, the thrill
0: of, uh, getting the work done at Microsoft. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your efforts. Hope to talk to you again soon. Okay. And we'll talk to you next week on run as radio.